how we view God affects what we believe God will do, and it affects what we believe God can do. In other words, our beliefs about who God is are some of the most important things that we should contemplate and consider, what we believe about him. Our beliefs about God cause us to wonder and consider, is our God a big God or is he a little God? Is our God all-knowing or is he kind of figuring things out as the world goes along? Is our God in control or is he being controlled? Is our God capable of doing all things or incapable of certain things? Is our God perfect or is he imperfect? Is our God competent or is he incompetent to handle some of the issues in the world in our lives? As we read here from the book of Habakkuk, we're learning about how this man, Habakkuk, how he views God. We're learning about what he believes God will do and what he believes God can do. And as we read here today in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 16, it's, it's a visual revelation that Habakkuk gets. It's a positive response that God gives to Habakkuk based on Habakkuk's prayer that Habakkuk has just shared in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Habakkuk 3 through 15, it's also a theophany. It's a manifestation of God on earth as Habakkuk sees God. A definition of a theophany is an appearance of God in great power and glory. And here in Habakkuk 3, some people would say this is the clearest theophany in all of Scripture, even clearer than God's revelation to Moses in the book of Exodus. But verses 3 through 15 here of Habakkuk are also an answer from God to Habakkuk's prayer in verses 1 and 2. And in response to Habakkuk's prayer, God gives Habakkuk a reminder of God's past mighty acts. And those reminders of God's past mighty acts are designed to stimulate faith in God for the future. Here in chapter 3, we've seen Habakkuk praying in verses 1 and 2. He is now pondering about God in verses 3 through 15. And next week in verses 6 through 19, we'll see how he is praising God. So in our time together, we're going to look at this awesome appearance of God in verses 3 through 7. And then the amazing acts of God in verses 8 through 15. And as we start here, there might be a little bit, uh, some difficulties for us to interpret some of the things said, because Habakkuk is describing some cultural um, backgrounds and some geographical locations that we don't really understand because we don't live in Israel. It's kind of like if you and I say, you know, let's go down to Blue Heron near the lake to have a barbecue. Those of us that live here know the lake is Moses Lake. We don't need to say the name of the lake. And we know that Blue Heron is not a bird, it's the park of which we want to go to have a barbecue, right? That's kind of the lingo we would talk about. Or if we say we're going to go to potholes to go camping, someone that doesn't live around here might think you go camping in the woods, not near a pothole on a road, right? But potholes is a state park that we all know is about 20 minutes south of us. So there's certain geographical locations and cultural background that when we talk, we don't have to explain because we're using that same language. And that's how Habakkuk is talking here. So I'll do my best as we go through to describe some of these for us and what he's probably referring to. 
First, as we see this awesome appearance of God in verses 3 through 7, Habakkuk describes in a subtle way how God is leading Israel to the promised land, starting in verse 3. He says, God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise, Habakkuk says. Now the location Timon was one of the chief settlements of the nation of Edom. And Paran was one of the areas between Edom and Judah. See, these two locations kind of orient us to an Israelite person that is exiting Egypt in the southwest, looking to the northeast to Israel. Habakkuk has given them a little picture of what it looked like when they would look towards the promised land, leaving Egypt under the time of Moses. They would see Taman and Paran as kind of these boundary markers, and they would see the Lord guiding them there. In a way, Habakkuk is tracing the steps of the Israelites from Egypt in the exodus of the book of Exodus to the promised land that they would arrive at in the book of Joshua. So those are the two locations Habakkuk mentions. But he also has a musical notation that he puts in here. That word Selah in the middle of verse 3. That word is used 71 times in the book of Psalms, but it's only used three times in the entire rest of the Bible. And Habakkuk uses those three times here. That word three times here. Now, just like we talked about last week in Habakkuk 3.1, that word shigionoth, we talked about how that word is transliterated for us, not translated, because a lot of us... A lot of people that study scripture don't know quite what it means. The word Selah is similar. It's transliterated for us, not translated. They're just taking the sounds from Hebrew and putting them into English. We're not always quite sure what the word Selah means. It comes from a Hebrew word that means to exalt or to lift up. So in a way, it could mean to elevate to a higher key or to elevate to a higher volume is one possible meaning of the word Selah. It could mean to reflect on what's been sung and to praise the Lord during that brief pause and intermission. It could mean just to lift up certain instruments, kind of like a trumpet fanfare. But whatever the meaning is, Selah is some type of a break or a pause intended for us to worship God based on what has just been said. So Habakkuk, he describes this leading of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land in verse 3. And then he describes light from the presence of God in verse 4. He says, His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand. And there is the hiding of His power. So we know from the New Testament that God is light. And if you can picture the sun coming up on the horizon, for those of us that get up early enough to see the sunrise some days, we don't see the sun first, right? But we see the rays. We see evidence of the sun, and then it rises up over the horizon, and it fills the earth. The power and light from the hand of God emphasizes that he is ready to do something. And Habakkuk mentions here about it's hiding. The power of this light is hiding. 
In much the same way, the light that we get from the sun is shielded. It's so far away, it doesn't hurt us if we got too near. And if we're in space without the atmosphere to protect us, it would also hurt us. In the same way, some elements of God's revelation to the Israelites had to be hidden from them. And we see the lasting impressions of the Lord's appearance in verse 5. It says, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. Again, this is a reference to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. As God moves throughout the earth, God is personified as light. He burns up what is in his path and he chars what lies behind him. In the vengeance of God's covenant with his people, He appears here, God appears here, and He creates plagues that devour the enemies of Israel. God burns up what's in front of them, and He chars what He leaves behind. And then we see land described in verses 6 and 7. In verses 3, 4, and 5, God is kind of off in the distance, but but here in verses 6 and 7, the Lord has arrived, and we see the world responds to the presence of God. This is the climax. God has reached the place where he is ready to execute judgment. And we see land that belongs to him in the first part of verse 6. It says, he stood and he surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. God is taking inventory of what he has created, and he's taking inventory of what he controls. There's this land that belongs to God, But there also is this land that responds to God. It says, God looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Now, mountains are a symbol of stability. They're big and solid and have a presence but these mountains they shudder when they see God and when they see what the Lord has done for Israel and when we read about the tents of Kishon and the land of Midian here this likely are probably two separate groups of people that were on opposite sides of the Red Sea that saw what happened on behalf of the nation of Israel as they were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. Two groups of people that saw the mighty works of God and that just as those mountains shuddered in fear, it says here, they were under distress and they were trembling at the sight of God. And as we read about this awesome appearance of God in verses 3 and 7, how God overcomes enemies, it it teaches us that the size of the enemies that God overcomes in the past should give us faith for the future. The size of the enemies that God has overcome in the past should give us faith for the future. As we read about God's vengeance and his pestilence and his plagues that he has done on behalf of Israel, the meaning is clear. God isn't some little old man that sits up in heaven wishing things to happen or sprinkling good thoughts on people. Instead, God is all-powerful, all-loving. His grace and glory are matched by His majesty and His might on the earth. And as we read about God's enemies throughout, not just 
here in these verses, but throughout the whole Old Testament, we realize that God has overcome some amazing enemies in the Old Testament. He used Moses to overthrow the Egyptians. He used David to take on the Philistines. And he used a guy named Nehemiah to overcome many local leaders in the book of Nehemiah that were trying to thwart God's plans. Not just that, as we read about enemies of God, we see the strength of the enemy often becomes the very source of the protection of God's people. If you remember from the book of Esther, this guy named Haman erects a pole that he wants to kill people on, particularly a Jew or two, and God uses that same pole to kill Haman, or Haman, depending on how you say it. In the book of Daniel, there's this lion's den that they put Daniel in, intending to kill him, but God preserves Daniel, and then instead sends Daniel's own enemies into that lion's den. Psalm 7.5 says that the person who makes a trap for the righteous eventually will fall into that same trap that he has designed to hurt God's righteous people. God has overcome amazing enemies and amazing obstacles in the Old Testament. I came across this from Max Licato this week from his book, Anxious for Nothing. In a chapter titled, Rejoice in the Lord's Sovereignty, he's talking about problems that we have to encounter and he tells this fictional story that I really like. Max Licato says, think of it this way. Suppose your dad's the world's foremost orthopedic surgeon. People travel from distant countries for him to treat them. Regularly, he exchanges damaged joints for healthy ones. With the same confidence that a mechanic changes spark plugs, your dad removes and replaces hips, knees, and soldiers. At 10 years of age, you're a bit young to comprehend the accomplishments of a renowned surgeon, but you're not too young to stumble down the stairs and twist your ankle. You roll and writhe on the floor and scream for help. You are weeks away from your first school dance. This is no time for crutches, no time for limping. You need a healthy ankle. Yours is anything but. In the room walks your dad, still wearing his surgical scrubs, he removes your shoe, peels back your sock, and examines the injury. You groan at the side of the tennis ball-sized bump. Adolescent anxiety kicks in. Dad, I'll never walk again. Yes, you will. No one can help me. I can. No one knows what to do. I do. No, you don't. Your dad lifts his head and asks you a question. Do you know what I do for a living? Actually, you don't. You know he goes to the hospital every day. You know that people call him doctor. Your mom thinks he is smart, but you don't know what your father does. So, he says, as he places a bag of ice on your ankle, it's time for you to learn. The next day, he is waiting for you in the school parking lot after classes. Hop in, I, wanna, I want you to see what I do, he says. He drives you to his hospital office and shows you the constellation of diplomas on his wall. Adjacent to them is a collection of awards that include words like distinguished and honorable. He hands you a manual of orthopedic surgery, surgery that bears his name. You wrote this? I did. His cell phone rings. After the call, he announces, we're off to surgery. You scrub up and you follow him into the operating room on your crutches. During the next few minutes, 
You have a ringside seat for a procedure in which he reconstructs an ankle. He is the commandant of the operating room. He never hesitates or seeks advice. He just does it. One of the nurses whispers, your dad's the best. As the two of you ride home that evening, you look at your father. You see him in a different light. If he can conduct orthopedic surgery, he can likely, likely treat a swollen ankle. So you ask, you think I'll be okay for the dance? This time, you believe him. Your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your father increases. Here is what I think. Our biggest fears are sprained ankles to God. Here's what else I think. A lot of people live with unnecessary anxiety over temporary limps. The next time you fear the future, rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. Rejoice in what he has accomplished. Rejoice that he is able to do what you cannot do. See, God overcomed all those mighty enemies in the Old Testament as he's giving this theophany to Habakkuk and Judah, telling them, if I've overcome all of those people, I can take care of this little nation of Babylon that's going to come. And as we read those stories, we need to compare our own struggles and our own troubles that we're going through. Maybe a car that's broken down and we can't afford to repair it. An energy bill that's much larger than we thought it would be and we can't fathom the money it costs. Maybe a portion of our body that constantly hurts. A problem in our marriage. A conflict with our job. Or an issue with a friend and a conflict with that friend. While those are problems that feel big and are big to our world, they are not small to God. See, if God can overcome the enemies of, of these people in the Old Testament, we can have faith that he will overcome our troubles too. See, the size of the enemies that God overcomes in the Old Testament, it teaches us about the size of the God that we worship. But as Habakkuk shares this theophany, as he's showing this vision of God, it shifts a little bit from the amazing appearance of God in verses 3 through 7 to the amazing acts of God. In verses 3 through 7, the third personal pronoun is used, he and him and his, to describe God. But then in verses 8, it becomes a little more personal, where Habakkuk switches to the second person pronoun, you or your, talking to God. And we see these amazing acts of God first in the past, in verse 8. He says, did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. These are questions that are asked that don't expect a positive. They don't expect an answer. They're a way to interrupt, kind of a poetic way to interrupt the passage and provoke us as the reader to ponder and think about the implications. John Calvin in his commentary says on this verse, the prophet here applies the histories to which he has already referred for the purpose of strengthening the hope of the faithful so that they might know these to be many proofs and pledges of God's favor towards them and that they might thus cheerfully look for his aid and not succumb to the temptation 
in their adversities. See, the point God is making is that he is not displeased with nature. Instead, he is using nature to show his pleasure towards the nation of Israel. Nature is merely a tool that he uses to demonstrate his power. For example, in the Nile River where he used Moses to turn the Nile River into blood in front of Pharaoh is what it's referring to here. The Red Sea, when Israel approached the Red Sea and God stopped the water and piled it up high so they could walk through. Or in the book of Joshua when they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land and the Ark of the Covenant touches the water's edge and the water stops so that the Ark of the Covenant could cross. And even a possible reference is to the future in the book of Revelation. There will be another river that God will overcome. It will be the Euphrates River that runs through the nation of Babylon. So those are the amazing acts of God in the past. And we see his planning here in verse 9. It says, Your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleave the earth with rivers. When it says your bow was made bare there, that means he takes his bow out so it is seen, it's visible, it's no longer in storage or hiding. God is ready for action. And we see the prompting of three different groups in verses 10 through 11. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted its high hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the sight, at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Now here, when it talks about the mountains and the deep and the sun and moon, this is what's called personification, where an author will ascribe human characteristics or human attributes or human actions to different inanimate objects or animals to give them life and to describe certain things. And he talks about the mountains here in verse 10. The mountains at the side of God, they quake. That Hebrew word there is ha-yil, which is used sometimes to describe a woman in labor, how she's in deep, severe pain in labor and in childbirth. And then when it talks about the deep here, it refers to waters. At the side of God, the waters respond and they praise God with its hands. With big waves, they respond in praise of the Lord when he shows up. And then the sun and moon there in verse 11 refer to a story in the book of Joshua chapter 10 where they're trying to overcome the Amorites at Gideon, the location Gideon. Gibeon was a man, Gideon was a location, if we can get those right. B and D sound very, very similar. But this describes when literally the sun and moon stood still so that God could allow his people to overcome the Amorites, their victory there. So as Habakkuk is describing the acts of God, here we see the past, we see God's planning, we see the prompting of the different parts of the earth. But we also see God's progress. In verse 12, it says, In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. See, God's not tiptoeing through the tulips as he acts on behalf of his people. 
He is trampling over the nations that lie in his path. Yet we see the preservation of God's people in verse 13. He says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. See, God's purpose for judgment is revealed in this verse. God is not angry at the nations. He's not angry at nature. He's just trying to purge the wickedness out of the nation of Judah and Israel. He's trying to deliver his own people. And in spite of these things that are happening, these judgments that have already been described in the book of Habakkuk, God is going to preserve his people. The first half of verse 13 says, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now that word for anointed there is the Hebrew word Messiah. Kind of sounds like Messiah, and that's where we get that word Messiah. Messiah is used 39 times in the Old Testament, nine times at least specifically referring to a royal figure, a specific person that will come to establish peace and justice and rule over the nation of Israel. That word Messiah or Messiah, the anointed one, is where we get Christ in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah or anointed in the Old Testament. And this future royal figure, this future Messiah is described in Psalm 2, 2, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, they say. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 26, then after 62 weeks, this is a future prediction, a future prophecy. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Same Hebrew words is translated as Messiah there versus anointed in Habakkuk. This is a prediction of Jesus coming, that God is still going to keep the nation of Israel intact that he is not going to allow them to be distinguished, that he is going to preserve the nation of Israel through the things that are going to come, through this punishment that he describes next in verses 14 and 15. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation like, was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. Here we see the enemy of Israel destroyed. When it says they stormed in to scatter us, there in verse 14, is again is another reference to Israel as they pass through the Red Sea, and then Egypt on their horses and their soldiers go into the Red Sea, and God allows the waters to crush the Egyptian army. And when it says, on the sea, many waters, down there in verse 15, that's a picture of God's future victory over the horses and the soldiers that tried to pursue Israel through the Red Sea. So as we read these mighty acts of God, we learn, and we should take to heart, that the mighty acts of God should give us faith for the future. The acts of God in the past for Israel should give us faith 
for the future. God is showing Israel, these people, that many times he has protected them and that he will keep protecting them in the future. He's led them out of Egypt. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's destroyed the Egyptian army. He's defeated the Amorites at Gibeon. David Jeremiah summarizes this passage in Habakkuk this way. He says, Habakkuk pictures the Lord coming in judgment, but he does so by using images from the past. God came from Timon, from Mount Paran. He allowed pestilence and earthquakes. He caused the land of Midian to tremble. God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through. God caused the sun and moon to stand still in victory at Gibeon. God delivered his people from Pharaoh. These divine interventions must have resonated with Habakkuk's audience. For the images reminded them that the God of Moses, who had delivered his people from Egypt, was alive and well, and would again reveal himself in power against their enemies. The mighty acts of God gives them faith for the future, and it should give us faith for our futures as well. And as we read about God's mighty acts in the Bible, we need to remember that these are factual and real events that really happened. They're not creative stories written by fictional writers. They're not myths that show up in comic books. They're historical events that are not just recorded in Scripture, but also in contemporary literature. If you read a history book or cover ancient history, I'm sure you learned about a guy named Nebuchadnezzar and a nation named Babylon the same nation that comes to conquer Judah. There are records in those different nations. They're always proud to talk about their accomplishments to conquer other people, and so sometimes Israel is listed in there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is the pastor of Believer's Chapel, has a book on Habakkuk where he says, The Bible plainly shows that my comfort and consolation lie in facts, the fact that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened. See, the Bible isn't just a collection of stories or fables. It's not just something that religious scholars study and speculate on. It's not like Buddhism or Hinduism that are ideas that they kind of follow and it changes based on who is the, the Dalai Lama. It's not a philosophy that we kind of follow. It describes literal things and literal people and literal acts. And because of that, it should give us confidence for what God will do in the future. And one of those things that we've seen is the preservation of the nation of Israel even today. That this tiny little group of people, these descendants from Abraham, a guy no one's ever heard of, and a little land in Israel, they don't have any natural resources, no strength, but somehow over the period of 2,600 years, they still exist. They're still there in spite of the Holocaust and all those things. God has still preserved his people because of the future promises he's given us in Scripture. And that's important for us. As we read about, or as we go through tough times and hard times, reminding ourselves of the great things God has done in Scripture and in our lives helps us get through those hard times. A guy named Lee that I've been reading uh, a book from, as I try to go to sleep at night, I'll read a book, and I've been reading his story, and Lee had been in the same job for three decades and doing the same thing, 
But after three decades, Lee had lost some of his passion for his work, and so he decided as a Christian man, he was going to fast every Thursday for three hours. And as he began those fasts and prayer to God, he said, God, I want you to give me, you know, give me a new vision. Give me a passion. Revive my heart for this job. You know, give me energy and fill me up, he prayed. And he wanted God to share with him you know, the future and what he should pursue and chase after. But as Lee shared, as he did those three hours of prayer and fasting every Thursday, God didn't give him guidance or a vision for the future. But every single week, God gave him reminders of how God showed up for him in the past. How there was this difficult situation with a couple that he worked with, and God gave him some help to get through it. How the company he was part of was struggling, and some, some money showed up to help them get through. He said, every week after week after week, God didn't tell me anything new. He just gave me subtle reminders of all kinds of things I had forgotten. But because of that, Lee was revived and energized because he was reminded of what God had done for him. And it gave him hope and belief for the future. And sometimes for us, when we want to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past, we need to record those things. Let me encourage you, get a journal or a notebook or write it down in your phone in the notes. You know, record how God has been faithful in your life. Sometimes it's helpful to read books about Christian people because they, they will tell in their autobiographies or biographies or their memoirs about how God's faithfulness. That can stimulate faith in us for the future. We might not always see what is in the future that God has for us, but we trust God will take us through the things we're in to the future because we know God has done those things in the past. God's past faithfulness should give us hope for future confidence. And if you're going through hard times today, let me encourage you to take some time to reflect and pray. Ask God to remind you of some of those times where He's showed up, so some of those mighty acts. As we end our time together, there's a story of a guy named Darnold Gray Barnhouse. A Donald Gray Barnhouse who was a pastor in Philadelphia and he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and the Rob, guy Robert Dick Wilson was a, a well-known Old Testament Hebrew scholar. There are stories of how supposedly he could read 25 different Semitic languages. I have a little hard time believing that. <laughs> but that's in the, the book I have that tells his story. And Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to go back to Princeton where he went to school to preach. And he preached a message where Robert Dick Wilson came and he sat right in the front pew. And he's a little nervous to have this Old Testament scholar listening to him as a former student. So he preached the message the best he could. And he says, as he's kind of greeting people after the service, Robert Dick Wilson shakes his hand and says, I don't need to hear you preach anymore. And he like turns away and walks away. <laughs> And Donald Gray Barnhouse says he was so distraught, like, I can't live with that comment. So he greets a couple other people, and then he hunts down that professor, and he finds him. And he says, what do you mean you won't ever hear me preach again? And Robert Dick Wilson said this. He said, when my boys come back to preach, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what type of ministry they have. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a little perplexed still, so he said, you know, tell me more. 
So Robert Dick Wilson says, Well, some men have a little God and they're always in trouble with Him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of Scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of His people. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show Himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. And Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a big godder, according to Robert Dick Wilson. He worshiped a big god. He had a, a good ministry. And Habakkuk, as we've been going through this book week after week for six weeks now, we're learning about Habakkuk. He's a big godder. He believes in a big god, and he's trying to show Judah how they worship a big god too. That through judgment, God will preserve them. Through judgment, they can still have faith in God. And through their faith, God will sustain them. And we must remember, too, living today, that we worship a big God. A big God that can overcome any situation that we're in. A big God that produces good, even in troubled times. And a big God that shines light where we can only see darkness. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that tells us how to live, that reminds us who you are. I pray that you'd help us learn more about you, God, and that we would believe in the big God that you are, that can overcome obstacles that we're going through, trials and troubles that we're trying to make it through. I pray for our church that through those troubles and trials that some of us are in, that we would look to you, that while we think and feel we can't overcome these things, I pray those would be opportunities for us as a church, that we would grow in our understanding of you, that we would grow in our dependence on you, God, that we would look to you to help us and sustain us and get us through those times. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are able to, I'll invite you to stand for the benediction. And then uh, we will celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and then go enjoy some food. So let us go and worship you, Lord, in what we say and what we do and what we think. Please let us saturate, saturate our city and our community with our worship of you. Amen.